This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is Secrets of the Most Productive People, a productivity podcast where we work smarter instead of harder and dissect exactly how to get it all done. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor Kate Davis. And I'm Fast Company Assistant Editor Anissa Prabhasari Horan. On this special bonus episode, we're answering all of your most pressing questions about both productivity and career. These questions span some of the most read topic on fastcompany.com and also come from your voicemails, emails, and social media. This is one, it's a all listener requested episode, and two, it's kind of like, you know, they always say like, if you only read one thing this year, if you only see one thing this year, if you only listen to one episode of this podcast, which you of course shouldn't, you should listen to all of them, but if you only listen to one, it should be this one, because we are going to cover the gamut of productivity and career top hits yeah. top top pressing questions pretty much every question that you've had about starting a job being in a job you've probably you know ranted about many of these things with your friends and you don't know what the answer is so we're going to answer that for you all right so this first question i think a lot of people can relate to this uh, listener says hi i've been working at my company for just over two years and the nature of Work that I do requires me to present a lot of ideas to the people on my team. The problem is whenever we debrief on a project, one of my coworkers always takes credit for my ideas. She says stuff like, I thought of, or I figured that out during presentations. And whenever I try to do the same, she cuts me off to talk about what she did. I want to say something to my boss, but she thinks the world of her and I don't want to seem petty. How do I bring this up without seeming childish? Uh, boss is probably completely unaware. <laughs> I mean, yes and no. I think some, it's, first of all, it's a really frustrating situation to be in yeah. that I think a lot of people can relate to. But sometimes, sometimes I think we think that managers are not as aware of like dynamics as, you know, we think they are, like that maybe they're not as mm-hmm. plugged in. And, you know, chances are if this sounds like this person, this is their personality, that they probably do this in other scenarios. And like, yeah. if your manager is like, paying attention and include in enough she probably has noticed this yeah but it's still it's still frustrating right yeah i would say a good approach is to so if you if you're putting together something um and you want to make sure that it's known like you're the one that that did the bulk of the work on this and you're going to present it tomorrow in a meeting send the document ahead of time you know it's like here's what we put together i just want you know we're going to go over it in detail tomorrow but i just wanted you to be able to see this ahead of time and like kind of make it clear like this is what i did and here's yeah. everything that i you know put together or make it clear as well that when you send the document you're going to be the one talking about it rather than just a general presentation and there's no really discussion in terms of you know who's doing what i presume that from the listener's question that there's kind of a debrief might seem they might be doing it more in an informal setting where they're talking mm-hmm. about the project and it's not really a formal presentation in terms of, you know, one team member does this and the other team member speaks about this. And I understand that in that kind of situation, it's a lot easier for people to interrupt because there's mm-hmm. no structure. So it's almost like you have to create structure to be like, hey, maybe I can talk about this and you can talk about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then, a- yeah, they really, then the, the person who takes credit really has to protest. They're going to make themselves look bad yeah. because they didn't do the work. Yeah. How can you talk about the thing that you didn't, you know, you weren't involved in? Yeah. It's not necessarily passive aggressive, but it a little bit is. But it's a kind of a way to 
make yourself because you, you know this listener says they want to not seem petty and not seem childish and yeah. of, of course saying like actually i did that does feel really petty and childish mm-hmm. So what you want to present is like, I appreciate everybody's contributions and I'm a team player and all of those things. So a way you can do that is, you know, so we just did this big redesign and I'd really like to thank all the hard work that this person did on this part and this person did on this part. And, you know, when I was working on this with it, so you kind of give people their credit for their parts and then you also point out and then here's what I did in it. So it doesn't seem like you're saying like, I did it all. I did it all. It's like, oh, these people contributed and here's what they contributed. And here's, you know, what I did. The person who's interrupting might also not be aware that they're doing it. You know, sometimes people do out of malice. I've been in situations where it's just how they are. And because no one's questioned them on it, Mm -hmm. they don't realize that what they're doing is wrong or that that's Mm -hmm. what they're doing. And I think that doing things like that is a tactful way to get them to look at themselves in the mirror and be like, wait is that what I've been doing? Have I been taking credit for people's work without kind of actually having to accuse them of anything? Yeah, So they don't have to get defensive. Yeah, exactly. And it always helps to go in with the benefit of the doubt of like, I don't think you're trying to screw me over and take credit for my ideas. You know, like that's not obviously not going to be a good approach, but just, you know, when we talk about our projects, like what do you think is the best way for us to to talk about it? I want to make sure we're both heard. And, you know, again, a lot of like workplace communication comes back to that, how can I help you? Like, I know. kill them with kindness <laughs> yeah. sort of approach, you know. You yeah. have to make the other person think that it's their idea, even though it's <laughs> your idea. <laughs> yeah, that's like 99% of, like, seceding at work is I like, know. thanks for that great idea that you had. Yeah. <laughs> that really was the idea I planted in your mind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, yeah, it's a really frustrating situation. I think a lot of people have been there and have also been just in the meetings in general where you get interrupted, mm-hmm. you know, and you and- can't. Some people are just louder than others, and I think that that's where personality comes mm-hmm. in, which is unfortunate. And it's know. just communication styles, too. Like, maybe just, like, my communication style and having lived in New York for a long time, like, I think I interrupt people sometimes. And mm-hmm. I, I certainly don't mean it to, like, step on their words or take care of it for their ideas, but, you know, if yeah. you have a slightly bigger personality or a lot to say or something, you can inadvertently, you know, maybe make people feel bad and I hope I I hope I don't do that and I would definitely welcome you know the right kind of feedback of somebody saying oh you know actually can you know how's the best way for us to present this or whatever yeah yeah it's good to be (laughs) self-aware yes all right the next one is also probably very common to anyone who works in an open plan office this listener says I work in an open plan office now I know everyone hates it and there are lots of reasons why it sucks so I kind of feel bad that I'm even complaining about this but I cannot stand my coworker who sits behind me. He's on the phone all day, both for work and personal reasons, and he's very loud. He eats really loudly, and when he gets annoyed, he's very expressive and does things like slams his books into the desk and yells to himself. It's very distracting, but doesn't seem like anyone else cares. Is it just me? What do I do? Oh, man, I couldn't, like, help but I was, like, stifling laughter throughout. I, know. <laughs> I was like, I feel like we've all had one of those, you know, desk mates yeah. and coworkers. I mean, it is, yeah, it, it is the problem, like the number one problem with open offices and why people hate open offices mm-hmm. is you just, there's no privacy, there's no walls, there's no sound barriers. And there's so much, like, I'm sh- 100% sure this guy is not like, how can I annoy my coworkers, no. you know? And is probably, maybe has some self-awareness of their, like, loud voice or their, you know, the noises they're making or whatever, but certainly does not know how it's affecting their coworkers. And I think this is another case of kill them with kindness Mm -hmm. and like make it your problem. Like, I'm so sorry. I have a really hard time, you know, concentrating with noise. Like, is it possible to 
you know, like, I'm, I'm sorry that it's just me and I'm just like really anal or something, you know, like make it be about, oh, I'm the problem, you know. Yeah. Is it possible for you to like take phone calls with a headset or, mm-hmm. or I mean, my other suggestion would be, I know so we have an open office here and I've noticed I've done it and I've noticed like a lot of other people do it of like finding spaces in the office when you need a respite I need to put the head down on this project I'm gonna go work in like the cafe area or in a conference room or whatever giving yourself breaks from this person yeah and another thing that I've seen suggested in you know the many articles we've written about open offices where usually there's a lot of complaints and a lot of people don't like them is some people have like quiet hours Mm -hmm. and I know this is kind of a little bit tricky because you really need to be a manager or have some sort of power to implement these things but you can also make the suggestion you could but yeah yeah. exactly you know it seems like this person when he's really upset that's just how he reacts and he's probably not thinking about like you say how it affects people but when he's forced to think about it it's like, okay, between 9 to 12, it's quiet hours. He might be like, oh, I need to be quiet. Whereas if it isn't, he's not thinking about being quiet. Yeah, so that would be like a company-wide, like, we are addressing this noise problem by you know yeah. Insti- yeah. instituting quiet hours. The other suggestions that, that we see a lot of are putting up a sign, you know, that says, uh-huh. like, do not disturb, sort of like a visual actual sign on your desk that... Usually that's suggested to so people don't interrupt you constantly. Yeah. But that could be a a literal sign to your coworker that's yeah. like, Oh, Anissa has her like do not disturb sign up. Maybe I should like stop slamming books around. Yeah, so it says that, you know, the coworker sits behind her. This listener can put the sign behind them. Yes. So that the coworker behind them sees it. The other thing, which is like the really obvious one, is to get some really good headphones. Yeah, that doesn't always work. Though. It doesn't and always. People interrupt you all the time. I've seen people interrupt people, you all the time. Yeah, people. Headphones. So, so the headphones are supposed to be. I always thought like the international symbol of "Don't disturb me. I'm in my own little zone with my headphones in." But yeah, you're right. It doesn't really work for interruptions. But if you have like good like noise canceling ones, like maybe it'll muffle that's this true. dudes. You know, a noise canceling one. Make sure it's a big one so they know that you're wearing headphones. Yeah, that's. The other thing I think, I think I my, don't know I think that makes a difference like my I, headphones are too subtle I need like the giant you do yeah. the ones we're wearing right now for recording the big the big yeah. like earmuff ones yeah, yeah. I, I do notice that when I wear bigger headphones I'm less likely to get interrupted than when I just wear my airpods and everyone just thinks that I'm not wearing anything and now here's my last uh, bit of advice which is a little tongue-in-cheek you could just start being loud back at him <laughs> just start having your own loud conversation. Start slamming when, when you know, when he slams. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. really mean this, but it's kind of funny to be like, you know, when killing them with kindness doesn't work, just go tit for tat and see yeah. how he likes it. <laughs> okay, our next one is a really sticky situation. This listener says, I know we're in an age when transparency is all the rage, but I was raised to not talk about money, and in my office, that's the vibe I got too. I don't know what's going on, but the last couple of weeks I've had two different people ask me what I make. One of them is a close friend and told me that they suspected they were being underpaid, and the other is someone that I'm not close with and just straight up asked me without context when we were at a company happy hour one day. I don't feel comfortable revealing my salary, but I also get why it's important to talk about it. What should I do? I mean, the real problem with this is why are we not taught to talk about money? Mm -hmm. But that's a whole other conversation. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, but that's really, yeah, that's the bottom line of it is like our culture, especially American culture, I think is very like, it's so weird. Like 
people will talk about sex people will talk about relationships people will talk about politics but people like ask somebody how much they make or how much you know their apartment cost or something and it's you get really uncomfortable about it yeah i think that what's unique about american culture that i've seen is that i feel like the whole kind of don't talk about money thing is universal but it's more than mm-hmm. in america it's also it's it's also a marker of success and so it's really weird that people don't talk about it, but then there's all this kind of pressure that you should make more money. And, you know, how do you, you know, you see all these articles about how do you make more money and a lot of the stuff around money, but then people aren't open about it themselves. And so that's where I find it's kind of weird. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I have read some about that too, of that, like, maybe to your point, like it's more American to think how much you make is tied to your, like, your intelligence or your worth Mm -hmm. whereas in correct me if i'm wrong but i feel like in other countries maybe it's just like so you you make a lot of money like it's not like as tied to like who you are as a person yeah i feel like i mean i think that human beings probably you know that's like human nature but i do feel like it's less obvious like it's not money isn't glorified as much Mm -hmm. in other countries that i've seen the way that americans glorify it so i think that's what makes the culture really interesting that they're still so closed off in terms of talking about money but at the same time they glorify it whereas in cultures where you don't really talk about money and you don't kind of worship money the same Mm -hmm. way it kind of makes sense that they wouldn't talk about it you know yeah so this this how much being asked how much you make you're right for the first step is like as a culture we should just be talking about money more for a lot of reasons the first being, you know, that that I think people are a lot of people are really bad with money and bad with managing money and don't understand a lot of the basics of it because it's not taught. And like you also just you don't know, like, you know, like we in our episode about negotiation, I think I said for an embarrassingly long time, I never negotiated because nobody ever told me that you should. And yeah. I was just like, yeah, OK, thank you. You know, and, and like having being more comfortable talking about it is 100 percent the first step. But if you've never talked about it and somebody's just like, how much money do you make? And it's somebody that you directly work with. Yeah, that can be a little bit awkward. Especially depending on, and this person doesn't say what their position is relative to these people. Mm -hmm. Um, So they said that the one person is a close friend and they suspected that they were being underpaid. That seems pretty clear cut that you should probably yeah. tell that person you know if they if you consider them a close friend and they're, exactly and they're telling you look i, I want to know how much you make because i think that i'm being yeah. underpaid and i mean if think about you know how this the listener would feel in that situation mm-hmm. if they suspected they were being underpaid you'd probably want your friend to tell them mm-hmm. what they were being made yeah but if the and then this other one for that one i don't really get why they're uncomfortable with it it seems pretty obvious that like you know this person's a friend they told mm-hmm. you what their problem is you know it's not really going to hurt unless you think, you know, you make a lot more than them and it's going to like cause a problem in the friendship. You, yeah. Um, you can then you can hedge and like say a range or something. Yeah, I was going to say that that's um, I went to a talk about salary negotiations a couple of weeks ago and it was from the side of, you know, it was a woman who suspected that all of the women in her company was being underpaid. And she asked one of her white male colleagues how much he made. And I think he also had the same reaction. So he, she just said, okay, do you make over this range or mm-hmm. do you make under this mm-hmm. range? And apparently when she said that, he was really comfortable mm-hmm. with talking about yeah, know, that's, whether he was making over something or under something. Yeah, I, and I think that's a great way to like redirect it. And I think all of these conversations about money, you can answer in ways that aren't like, here's my exact salary. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, you know, to, to the listeners, second part of like the other one was just some random coworker at a happy hour, like saying, how much money do you make? I think the 
what you can say there is why do you ask like what are you trying to, yeah. to get at do you feel that you're being underpaid do you are you looking for a raise and you're trying to figure it out you know yeah and then depending on their answer and depending on this person's role in the company you know like are they at the same level or a higher level or whatever they could give advice as to you know well i think somebody in your position probably should you know mm-hmm. making this range or you should look on you know Glassdoor and see you know the salary ranges or whatever that's a great suggestion of saying like I'm wanting to figure it out. Do you make above or below this? Yeah. Or I found that the market rate for my role is 50000 Is that? Do you think that's in line with what people are making here? Is your mm-hmm. sense of, of that's in line? Or I'm looking to get a promotion and you're in the <coughs> position that I want to be in. What's a reasonable range for me to ask for? So then mm-hmm. you're kind of asking what they make without saying, like, what's your exact salary? Yeah. Although I think, you know, this gets at a larger thing that we've talked about a little bit of, like, you know this person gets at it like we live in an age of transparency like yeah i think you know we're yes. we're moving to like more trans like more salary transparency even if it's not exact salaries salary ranges for roles like m- the more information the better in getting people paid fairly and not f- having these like awkward conversations or feelings like they're underpaid yeah i think for people who feel like they're uncomfortable i mean i get that it's a cultural thing and if you were taught to think like that it's really hard to you know unlearn all of that kind of belief but I think that I would just say to people who feel like that it's actually to your benefit for everyone to be transparent because even if you are overpaid there could be someone else who's way more overpaid than you Mm -hmm. are and you know that doesn't guarantee that you're going to be like that all the time and I think that that's just you know it's getting out of the mentality of like oh there's not enough money to go around Mm -hmm. And, like, if I reveal my salary, then it's, you know, my salary is going to go down. It's more that, like, well, no, everyone will benefit. And you will also have to do less guesswork when you do negotiate your own salary because you're not kind of just, like, taking a stab in the dark in terms of what you're worth. You're like, okay, I'm worth this because this is what the data actually shows. Mm -hmm. And this is what, you know, also, like, this is how my company compares to others. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, this is what, if I want to make more money, these are the things that I need to do and the results I need to meet. All right. The next one is for all the managers out there. So this person said, a little over a year ago, I hired a woman for an entry-level position. She came recommended from a former colleague and interviewed well. She works really hard, often staying late to finish things, but that's part of the problem. It takes her way too long to do tasks that I would have expected her to have more mastery over by now. I've gone over her strengths and weaknesses um, at both a six-month and one-year review, and she acted like she understood how she was failing, but each time she hasn't improved. I feel like I've made an effort to help her succeed, but I don't have the time to babysit her and teach her how to get better at her job. I don't want to have to fire her because I do get the sense that she's doing her best. I'm just afraid that her best isn't good enough. Is there any other way to approach the situation? Kate is the manager in this. <laughs> Out of, I feel like this is your lane. Ugh, it's so yeah. Thanks for giving me like the really hard awkward <laughs> one. Well, I don't know. I I could not give advice to this because I do not know what it's like to be in this position. Um, I don't know that I've ever been in this exact position before. You know, there's there's certainly been times in my my career as a manager when people have not been been meeting expectations. But this is. I mean, it does sound like this manager is really being really thoughtful about it which is yeah. great and has done his or her best in trying to help this employee so I totally feel them in like I've done what I can I feel like there's nowhere for else for me to go 
they say like I don't want to fire her you know because I get the sense that she's doing her best like no I don't think anybody wants to fire anybody you know nobody's like oh this is gonna be fun like it's horrible it's horrible it's gut-wrenching yeah I think that there's a couple of courses of action one is is there another role in the company that she would be better suited for yeah I think that's a good first step not necessarily a demotion but like is there just like I I don't think anybody has no redeeming skills you know Mm -hmm. And, and there's a reason why she was hired so maybe she's just not in the right role and there's like a way that you can change her role or help her move to a different department that might work so that's one approach I think the other approach is you know this person says they went over her weaknesses at uh you know both the six month and the the one year review I don't know how clear they were in like here's what your expectations are and here's what will happen if you don't meet them I think sometimes people will say like oh yeah, I get it, I get it, I get it. And they don't really understand like the stakes or they don't really understand like how serious it really is or that, that their manager really means like, no, I need you to meet your deadlines. And if you yeah. don't meet your deadlines, it's important and this is what will happen sort of thing. So I would say a common tool that's used is the uh, performance in- improvement plan, which has a bad reputation because usually when you get one, it means that things aren't yeah. going well, but but might put, you know, for lack of a better phrase, like put the fear of god in this person that like yeah no i'm you know if i don't change things around it's it's really serious yeah. this time and so then you kind of spell it out really clearly that's like these are the benchmarks i need you to meet if you don't meet them then this isn't gonna yeah. work out and sometimes things don't work out yeah you know i will say i feel like i mean i don't know how bad i was but when in my when i was in my <laughs> previous career i kind of felt like i was in this situation where i genuinely try to improve but i just wasn't in the right role mm-hmm. it's a very different conversation when you're saying your best isn't good enough versus your strengths are not suited mm-hmm. to the specific mm-hmm. role and would be better off in another role mm-hmm. Like, those are two very different conversations. Yes. One is, like, almost attacking the person. Mm-hmm. And the other one is just, like, no, this is just a mismatch. And, you know, like, I think if it does come down to the fact that you have to let this person go, and, again, this isn't this probably goes more, you know, as an above and beyond duty for a manager, but one I think would be super helpful to the employee is just to be like, well, I think these are your strengths. Mm-hmm. And you can maybe talk about, you know, what other roles, you know, this – she might be suited for like again I know that that's not really the job of a manager but if you feel bad about firing her that might make you feel better because she's gonna feel better and be like oh they don't think I'm a bad employee this just literally doesn't fit in my strengths yeah this your skills don't align with this job and I mean like that could even be you know take it from something like in in our field like maybe you're not a great editor and but you're a really good writer and that's Mm -hmm. where your passion lies and like the job that that you're in right now is only editing yeah like so it's not that you're just a bad person with no good skills it's you're just your skills aren't being used in the right way exactly that's a very good way to frame it this episode of the new way we work is brought to you by verizon the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com Okay, here's the next one, which I think a lot of people can relate to. Um, I know I can relate to it when I have to leave work on time. I just started a new job, and my wife gave birth to our new baby not too long ago. She recently went back to work. For context, she is an ER doctor who and has irregular shifts, so she's not able to be as in control of her schedule as I am. We agreed that I will leave work at 5 p.m. to take care of home responsibilities, except in rare circumstances. 
The thing is, it seems like everyone in my office works late all the time, though personally I don't feel like they're being that efficient with their time. I know that I can get all of my work done by 5 p.m., so I don't think I'm compromising my performance at all by leaving early. I'm just worried about being perceived that way. How do I do it in a way where I don't look like a slacker? Well, it's a non-negotiable, really. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, it seems like this listener is a male, and I know that like there's different kind expectations, of like, expectations yeah. put on them, but it's like still neg- like it impacts them negatively to leave at 5 p.m., but... I mean, yeah, I don't know what the gender balance is. I see like where the kind of awkwardness is, but I don't know. I feel like it is one that you, there's not really, and like you say, it's a non-negotiable thing. You just kind of have to almost be confident. Yeah. And I, I would say like chances are you are not the only parent in your office. Exactly. You know, chances are there are other people, like it sounds like there's just a work culture of FaceTime yeah. or a perceived work culture of FaceTime. And I bet if you brought it up, you know, hopefully you have an understanding manager, but if you brought it up to, if you know that there are other parents in the office or other people that have, you know, certain commitments, and you brought it up to them and said, like, you know, here I need to leave at 5 p.m. and here is why, and I'm going to get all, I mean, just really lay your cards on the table. Like, say exactly this. I'm, you know, I know I can get all of my work done. I don't want it to appear that I'm you know, not dedicated. I'm very dedicated. If there's something that, you know, needs my attention off hours, I'm, you know, happy to log back in after, you know, my wife is home or after my baby goes to sleep, but I have to leave at this time because I have daycare pickup and I just have to do it, you know? And if you get kind of like the other parents on board who are like other people, Mm -hmm. like I bet, like, I bet you're going to do your company a favor of like changing the culture, you know? You also don't know how many of those people actually don't want to be, they might feel like they have to do that. Mm -hmm. And also I'm wondering, because it says I am worried about being perceived that way. They They might not actually perceive. Yeah. Maybe it's all in your head. Yeah. Like I know that for me anyway, when I see people leaving early, my um the first thought that i have isn't that they're lazy the first thought that i have is oh they're so efficient (laughs) why can't i get all my work done before 5 p.m i mean my i'm the i'm one of the people that has to you know leave at a certain time every day but i also when i see other people leave at like four or something i don't think like similarly i don't think oh wow you're leaving at four like you're really a slacker i'm like oh they have somewhere they have to be yeah you know like i don't i think I think people don't realize how much their work speaks for themselves and how much their presence in other, you know, in other ways in contributing to meetings and contributing to projects and like just doing other things and being valuable um, matters so much more than FaceTime, even in a culture I think that you feel like values FaceTime. And if you really feel like you're worried that people are going to view you as a slacker, then just log in and send an email at like 8 p.m. You know, yeah. like just do like a you little can, bit of like. <laughs> you can even schedule it during work. Yep. You know, you can do it when you're at your desk at like 1 p.m. Just have it have it scheduled to be sent at 8 or 9. Yeah, like look, see, I'm exactly so dedicated. <laughs> okay, so this one comes in um, from Matthew from voicemail. I'm an undergraduate student and I've been keeping up to date with the economic forecast. It's not unlikely that we could see a recession here relatively soon. What can I and other undergraduate students do to prepare for a flimsy job market? And for those already have a role, what can they do to protect themselves from getting laid off? Thank you. I feel like this is so close to <laughs> us in the media industry. Yes. <laughs> I, will, I will preface it by saying the last time there was a recession, I was laid off. So right. it's a very real fear. Obviously, you know, as, as Anissa, as you just like hinted at some 
industries are more vulnerable yeah. than others. Yeah, yeah. And my last, and I mean, I think, when did I start working full time? 2013. So it was kind of out of the recession. I was in the legal industry, but they weren't as impacted. Yeah. And I felt like, you know, because everyone needs lawyers. <laughs> I know. It's so, it's so funny. I was, I was talking to another editor here, and I worked in Midtown during... Uh, 2008 I worked in a magazine in Midtown in 2008 and I saw Lehman Brothers like go like black and all of the bankers walk out with their boxes and she was saying the same thing she's like and I felt so smug because I was like well we're fine and then oh my I, god and then a year later a lot of us lost our jobs yeah. I mean so yeah uh, some of it is gonna be totally out of your control like uh, you know I I got laid off after the magazine that I was at got sold you know yeah. I mean like some of it like certain things you can't control so this it seems like there's a two part question. The first one is how do you land a great role, yep. and then the first, and then the second one is how do you protect it. I feel like with landing a great role, I think this is gonna sound so cliche, but you really do have to be resourceful and not be so narrow minded in terms of what you want your job to be, because there's a lot of data that shows that there's also a lot of businesses that are created in recession, and new industries come out of those recession because people are desperate and they want solutions. So I feel like that is probably the number one thing is just you know. Yes, it's good to have high standards, but if you desired kind of field or like specific job, if you're having trouble getting roles in that, then maybe look and see, okay, what are my skill set? Are there any roles in industries where that can be beneficial or where I can leverage to kind of, you know, move into another role? And is there a place where like I have enough skills to gain other skills that I can then, you know, leverage into another role? And so I feel like that's really the key. Yeah, so there's certainly, and there's lots of those sorts of lists out there, right, of like recession-proof careers mm -hmm. or um, jobs of the future, you know, like there's there's certain ways to your point of like spinning your skill set. Like maybe you were something very specific and you mm -hmm. think I'm going to be this thing because this is what I majored in. There's certainly ways to, like you said, like spin out your skills into industries that maybe are a little more recession-proof. Yeah. I don't even think they have to be recession proof. It's just more kind of, you know, being open about what your skill involves and then seeing where the market needs you. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, okay, law and journalism are two very different jobs. And obviously with law, you need more training. But I'm like, but I had very similar skill set. I was dissecting complicated mm -hmm. information and summarizing it. I will say, too, I think that the advice on how to get a job in a recession and how to keep a job or, you know, protect this person says protect yourselves from being laid off, which you can't. You know, yeah, I was totally like, do. I'm sorry, that's just not no, possible. There's no like special spray that you know yeah. protects you from being laid off. But the answer to both of those questions is the same if you take out the word recession. In a yeah. way, you know, it's like how do you make yourself valuable at your job? Like yeah. how do you make yourself somebody that they don't want to lose? Because exactly. sometimes when it when like budgets are tightened and somebody has to go, it's not always like it's not always a blanket layoff of like we're just going to cut headcount or lay everybody yeah. off or whatever. Sometimes it's management looks at like okay we have to reduce headcount by this mm -hmm. amount or budget by this amount so yeah making yourself just the same advice of how you make yourself a valuable indispensable employee works for recession versus non-recession yeah. so that means going above and beyond your job description being indispensable and singular in that like you know you're the only person that can do this one thing like you're yeah. the go-to expert on whatever you know, I mean, it's really just like that advice of like making yourself the person where they were like, oh, my God, if Anissa leaves, how are we going to function? What are we going to do? She's doing all of these things that like she's the best at, you know, like we got to make sure that we keep her around. 
Yeah, I would say that this is something that I think um, I feel like a lot of our peers in the media industry pro- approach that we probably have. And it's not necessarily about protecting your job, but, you know, we're in an industry where layoffs are just normal. Like, I kind of almost expect it to happen, which I know is really sad. But mm-hmm. the way that I think about it, sometimes they have nothing to do with how good you are. Because mm-hmm. it would just be like, oh, we're going to cut your department. Yep, and you could just... be really high performing. And, you know, like we're, we're reducing this vertical. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and 100%. Exactly. There's so many fantastic journalists that just yeah. you know got cut yeah but the way that i think about it is like okay well i'm going to have contacts where you know i could contract out some of my work if i do get laid off so that you know i can at least have some you know income coming in while mm-hmm. for a new job or like decide to go in a freelance capacity mm-hmm. and i think that that's i mean i know that with journalism that that's kind of the nature of it but i think you can do that with a lot of other jobs as well just to have a backup plan and like that's just good advice too. Again, like any time in your career, to have a, to be able to be flexible enough to think about what else you could do. Exactly, and that it's not like you know. I think you you really get into trouble when you're like, this is the only job I could ever do, or I could only ever work for this company doing this thing. Like, you know, yeah. How can you do a side hustle? How can you have freelance work? How can you also like what other skills do you have that like you lose this job you can pick up. Side, yeah. side jobs doing other sorts of things or like build up those skills but yeah it's it's really scary it's really awful it is really scary but I don't know I just feel like at least um I think that the mentality of kind of like rather than trying to protect yourself from layoffs which 99% of the time it's not in your control mm-hmm. it's just like okay how do I make myself indispensable not just to this company but to my industry as a whole and how can I get people to pay for the skills that I can bring and you don't just think about it in a full-time employment capacity. Yeah, and just like, what else can I do and what else am I interested in? I will say when I was a laid-off journalist, I did freelance a lot. Mm -hmm. I also started teaching yoga, you know? Like, I was like, what else can I do? This I have a skill in, this I did training in, you know, like, Mm -hmm. I, to your point, I diversified (laughs) my portfolio. (laughs) And look at me now, folks. All right, so that's it for our special bonus episode. We couldn't get to everything, but I really hope that we helped solve some of your most pressing career and productivity and open office and job questions. This is the final episode of Secrets of the Most Productive People Season 3. We'll be back in 2020 with new episodes. In the meantime, make sure to catch up on any episodes you might have missed wherever you get your podcasts. If this episode was helpful, please let us know. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can follow Fast Company on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Secrets of the Most Productive People is produced by Victoria Grace.